we are not like an ivory tower lab you know we are not a lab that just writes papers we are a lab that has our hands and feet dirty we sort of get ourselves dirty sort of get in there you know we test our assumptions see whether it works learn from them and in that sense actually the problems that we work on are a lot more real uh, than a purely academic environment welcome to the microsoft research india podcast where we explore cutting edge research that's impacting technology and society I'm your host Sridhar Vedantam. Microsoft Research India is constantly exploring how research can enable new technologies that positively impact the lives of people while also opening new frontiers in computer science and technology itself. In this podcast, we speak to Dr. Shriram Rajamani, distinguished scientist and managing director of the Microsoft Research India lab. We talk about some of the projects in the lab that are making fundamental changes to the computing at internet scale, computing at the edge, and the role he thinks technology should play in the future to ensure digital fairness and inclusion. Shriram also talks to us about a variety of things, his own journey as a researcher, how the lab has changed from the time he joined it many years ago, and his vision for the lab. So today we have a very special uh, guest on the podcast and he is none other than Dr. Shriram Rajamani who is the managing director of the Microsoft Research Lab in India. So Shriram welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me here Shridhar. Okay Shriram so you've been around in Microsoft Research uh, for quite a while right? Uh, can you give me a brief background as to how you joined and when you joined and what's your journey been in MSR so far? Yeah so I joined in 1999 and um, oh man it's now 22 years I guess I've been here for a while <laughs> that's a long time I I joined <laughs> I joined in Microsoft Research in Redmond right after my, I finished my you know PhD in uh, in in Berkeley and then I uh, you know my PhD was in formal verification so my initial work in Microsoft Research in Redmond was in the area of formal verification and then at some point i moved to india around 2006 or something like that so i think i spent about 6 or 7 years in redmond and my remaining time another 15 years in uh, in india so that's been my my journey yeah okay so this is interesting right because uh, you know we we constantly hear about india as being this great talent pool for software engineers but we certainly don't hear as often that it is a great place for a computer science research lab why do you think a, a microsoft research lab in india works and what drew you to the lab here um you know i'm a scientist and uh, i joined msr because i wanted to do um high quality science work that is also applicable in the real world you know that's why i joined um msr uh, and the reason why i I moved to India was because at some point I just wanted to live here. I wanted to live here because I have family here and so on. And um and then you know Anandan started the lab and so some of things came together and that's why I personally moved. But if you ask, you know, ask me why it makes sense for MSR to have a lab here, um the, the reasons are quite clear. I think you know we are such a big country, we have enormous talent. I think talent is the number one reason I think we are here. particularly unique to india is that we have really strong undergraduate talent which is why we have programs like our research fellow program but over the past many years right the phd talent is also getting better and better 
Uh, as you know, you know, initially when we started, we recruited many PhDs, you know, from abroad who had their PhDs from abroad and then returned just like me. Uh, but over, over the years, we've also recruited many PhDs from Indian institutions as well. Uh, so I think talent, I think, is the number one reason. The second reason is, um, you know, the local tech ecosystem is very different. It started out as a service industry for the West. You know, essentially all of the software we were doing, we were servicing you know, companies in, in the Western, Western hemisphere. But over time, India has also become a local consumer of technology. Right. You know, now be it if you sort of think about, you know, Ola or Flipkart, uh, you know, the, the country is now using technology for its own local purposes. And because of the size and scale of the country, the amount the government and um, industry is pushing digitization, uh, there's a huge opportunity there as well. And finally, I would say another reason to have a lab is in a place like India is that it's a very unique test bed. You know, cost is a, a huge concern uh, in a place like India. Uh, technology has to be really low cost for, for it to be adopted here. There are very severe resource constraints, be it bandwidth. Uh, you know, if you think about NLP, you know, many of our languages don't have data resources. Um, very unreliable infrastructure. Things fail all the time. So, you know, I've heard a saying that if you build something so that it works in India, it works anywhere. So, so, so it's in that sense, it's a test bed. It's a test bed to actually build something. Uh, you know, if you can deploy it and make it work here, you can make it work anywhere. So, in that sense, actually, it's also that's also another reason. Okay, so basically, it works here. It's a good certification that it'll work anywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, Sriram. So here's something I'm very curious about. Uh, how does a research scientist end up becoming the managing director of a lab? The short answer is that it was rather unplanned. Uh, but maybe I can give a, a more longer answer. You know, I started out being a researcher like anyone else who joins MSR. My initial projects were all in the area of uh, you know, formal verification. You know, I, I built together with Tom Ball uh, something called Static Driver Verifier that um, used formal methods to improve Windows reliability. Then I worked on verifiable design. How can you do better design so that you produce better systems? Then I worked on um, you know, security. Now I work on you know, machine learning and program synthesis. And you know, a common thread in my work has always been the use of programming languages and formal methods to sort of understand how to build various kinds of systems, you know, be it drivers, be it secure systems, be it machine learning systems. That has been sort of the theme underlying my research. But to answer your question as to how I sort of became lab director, you know, after, you know, some years after I moved back to MSR India, uh, you know, Anandan, uh, who was the lab director then, you know, he, he left. There was a leadership churn there. And at that time, I was asked whether I would consider being a lab director. And the first time I declined because I had many other uh, technical projects that are going on. But I got the opportunity the second time, you know, when Chandu and Jeanette, you know, really encouraged me when, when Chandu decided to move on. And, um, you know, I had been in MSR maybe 15, 16 years when that event happened. And one of the reasons why I decided to take this up was I felt very strongly for MSR. I mean, I thought that MSR has given me a lot and I wanted to give back to MSR and MSR India. And MSR India is, you know, easily one of the best um, CS, computer science, industrial labs uh, in this part of the world. And, uh, you know, it made sense that I actually devote my time to support my colleagues, grow their lab in ambition, impact. And I sort of had a sense of purpose in that. And so I decided to take this on. So that the answer to your question is, I don't think anyone plans to be a lab director. Sometimes, you know, you get an opportunity to become one. And sometimes you say yes. Mm, great. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, and uh, you know, given that you've been in the lab uh, here in India for quite a while, how do you see the lab having evolved over the years? I mean, I'm sure there are lots of things that have changed quite a bit. So what do you think are those things that have changed quite a bit and what's not changed and what are the kind of things that you'd like to preserve going forward? Yeah, I think the number one thing that has not changed is quality. MSR, I've now been here for now 21 years and I've been with MSR India you know, from the very beginning. I came here after six, seven months after the lab started. We've always had great people. The quality of the work we do has always been exceptional. But I think what has changed over the years is that we think much more end-to-end. When I joined, you know, 99, we were sort of more academic in nature. We always used to publish uh, in high-quality conferences, which we still do. But I think what we do more now is that we think much more end-to-end. We are no longer satisfied with solving a particular piece of a problem. But we sort of think about how does that piece connect with many, many other pieces, some social, some technical, and how do those things fit together broadly to solve problems end-to-end. We sort of think about that a lot more. As a result, I think we more often than not deploy what we build, um, you know, either in scale solutions that actually are adopted by product groups or actually in our communities to actually validate whether what we think about as something that creates a change, does it indeed create a change and learn from that and use that to even reframe our problems, test our assumptions. And so, you know, I don't think we are, we are not like an ivory tower lab. You know, we are not a lab that just writes papers. We just, we are a lab that has our hands and feet dirty. We sort of get ourselves dirty, sort of get in there. You know, we test our assumptions, see whether it works, learn from them. And in that sense, actually, the problems that we work on are a lot more real. Uh, than a purely academic environment. I think that that's the way in which things have changed. And I think partly also see that, right, as as you do that, we have become a lot more interdisciplinary. Right. You know, if you look at our projects today, right, because if, if you want to get something to work end-to-end, it is not just one piece you build. You know, you have to make it interdisciplinary. And many of our projects are interdisciplinary. I think that's the other way in which we've changed. Yeah, in fact, uh, this particular term, right, interdisciplinary research is something that I've heard quite often coming from you. Uh, do you want to uh, just bring up a couple of examples of uh, what you mean by interdisciplinary research through by using some projects as examples? Yeah, I can give like you know two or three. The first one that comes to mind is our easy PC or you know our multi-party computation project. And if you look at actually how that project is working, the whole goal is to take computations, be it DNN training or DNN inference and run it securely with multiple parties. And, you know, that's a pretty complex problem. There's compiler people, there's programming languages people, and there's cryptographers, all of them work together to build a solution where the programmer can express their computation in some language. And there's a compiler that compiles it. And then there is, you know, a lot of cryptography smarts are there uh, in order to make this, you know, multi-party computation work. And, uh, and that's very unique. You can't do this without compiler people and the cryptographers getting together. Another example, you know, is if you look at our you know, Acupara uh, semantic search work, that's actually a combination of algorithms work, machine learning work, and systems work uh, so that we can index trillions of vector indices and look them up, right, in a reasonable amount of time with a reasonable number of machines. I mean, I can't imagine you doing that without expertise in algorithms, machine learning, and systems. 
And if you look at our more recent, you know, societal impact projects, like we have this project called HAMS, which we are using to improve road safety. I mean, that has actually quite a bit of tech, like computer vision. You have to make that work on a smartphone. So you need to have systems innovation to actually make that work on a smartphone. And it has quite a bit of HCI. I mean, it has to work in an environment where you go into a driver license uh, testing RTO and it should just work there, right? You know, it has to work with people. The feedback that is given should be um, consumable. Um, you know, if somebody fails a driving test, the feedback has to be given in, is in such a way that it's a positive experience for them even if they fail the test, right? So it has all these interdisciplinary aspects. Um, so I hope th- those give, give you a, a little bit of a flavor uh, for what it takes to solve things end to end. A lot of the listeners of this podcast are not going to be really familiar with, uh, uh, you know, all the stuff that we do here at MSR, right? At MSR India, especially. Uh, in your mind, uh, you know, how do you kind of categorize or bucket the different research work that goes on in the lab? We now think about our work as um, uh, being classified into themes and um the theme is different from our expertise. If you look at our expertise, right, our expertise has always been, you know, from the beginnings of the lab, we have four broad areas of expertise. We have, you know, people with expertise in algorithms, um, second in machine learning, and third in systems, very broadly interpreted in including programming languages, distributed systems, networking, security, and so on. And then we have people who do human-computer interaction and uh, social sciences, right? Those are our four areas of expertise. But if you look at the way we organize our work now, it is in the themes. We have five themes. Uh, one theme is around large-scale uh, machine learning, uh, you know, things like recommendation systems, uh, search, large multilingual learning, uh, which spans an entire gamut from algorithms to practical machine learning algorithms, as well as systems, right, you know, in order to build them and scale them. Then we have two systems-related themes, um, one is uh, data-driven systems and networking, where we are using a telemetry and the enormous amount of data that we get from large-scale cloud systems to do machine learning on them and improve those systems themselves. And then the second systems area we have, we have is called co-design systems, where we think about interdisciplinary systems work that spans distributed systems, security, privacy, programming languages, verification. So we sort of think about systems much more holistically. Another theme we have is edge computing, where we sort of think about machine learning systems, usability in the edge, which is such an important uh, topic from the perspective of, of India. And the last theme is socio-technical systems and inclusion, where we really think about technology as an ally uh, for an enabler for inclusion and empowerment. And each of these five themes, right, draws on the expertise of people from these various um, uh, disciplines. Great. So I've heard you many times talking about things like uh, tech at scale. So I think you have a couple of things, um, you know, there are a couple of things that you've said that uh, kind of stick in my mind. So there is one tech at scale and then there is one tech in minute form. I forget the exact terms you use. And uh, social technical computing is also quite big at uh, MSR India right now. Could you give me a, a flavor of, you know, what exactly is happening in, say, the tech at scale area uh, and also the social technical computing area? Yeah, 
I think tech at scale is quite important because digital systems are very pervasive now. I mean, the pandemic has only accelerated the adoption of digital systems. Most interactions these days are online. And even when we come back from the pandemic, it's going to be hybrid right the amount of information is just increasing and increasing and increasing and as a result right for any useful user experience we need to be able to sort through this huge amount of information and make the right information available at the right time right and that i think is in some sense the primary goal of ai and machine learning and systems at scale and um, i think most of our systems at scale work are about how to build systems that use AI and machine learning to process huge, humongous amounts of information, billions and trillions of pages or documents or vectors, understand them and make sure that the right information is available to you at the right time. And how do you do that reliably? How do you do that securely? Uh, how do you do that while preserving privacy? So that I think is the, is the crux of our tech at scale. I already mentioned Acupara which is a trillion scale index and serving system that we are building for semantic search. Another at scale project we are doing is called extreme classification, where we are trying to build classifiers that can take an object and classify it into hundreds of millions of categories, right? And just like, you know, when we think about machine learning, we think about a picture and classifying it into a cat or a dog or a small number of categories. But in extreme classification, we take an object like a web page or a document and we classify it into potentially millions or hundreds of millions of, for example, topics. I mean, what are these topics that this document is talking about? Or if this object that I'm talking about is an advertisement, what are the keyword bit phrases that are actually relevant to this advertisement, right? So those kinds of um, classifications are significantly more complex and our lab really originated this field and is a thought leader in this field. Another uh, at scale work that we are doing is if you take the area of DNN training, deep neural network training is an extremely resource intensive process. If you take billions and billions of uh, training points and train deep neural networks, that uses a huge number of GPU resources um, and other hardware resources. Can you do that more efficiently? And we have a project called Gandiva that improves the throughput of you know, all of the infrastructure that we are using to train uh, these kinds of DNNs. We want to give you one more example. If you have a project called Sankey, and what Sankey does is actually to use all of this telemetry from huge software engineering processes, including coding, testing, development, to really improve the productivity of uh, the engineering itself. So I would say you know, those are the kinds of examples of at scale AI and ML and systems project that we do. And I think every CS lab has to do that because, uh, you know, that is the real world today. And um, we've actually done a podcast earlier on Sankey. So I think I'll link through to that when we publish the transcript of this podcast. Wonderful. Right. And in social technical computing, uh, do you want to talk a little more about that? And this is something that personally I find quite fascinating you know, because this lab has always had, from the very beginning, a uh, focus on the ICTD space itself. But uh, the kind of projects that are happening now in the lab seem to be taking that to a different level altogether in terms of actually going out there and figuring out the impact and deploying at scale. Uh, you're right, Sridhar, that TEM, uh, Technology for Emerging Markets, has always been a really interesting area in the lab from the inception. But one thing that has changed, if you sort of think about it, is that, see, when the lab was started, right, the kind of technology that was available 
to everybody in rural india was very different from the technology that all of us use right you know they had maybe feature phones <laughs> and everybody else you know had smartphones and so on but now connectivity smartphone penetration and so on has increased significantly right so in some sense i think the smartphone and through 4g and so on connectivity to the cloud the cloud and the mobile and with the smartphone is much more accessible much more prevalent these days right uh, but still the problems are there you know bandwidth is a problem they, you know they don't work in local language yeah, you know english works much better than local language those constraints are there but the technology platform has up leveled throughout the country so as a result right uh, if you take our own uh, work on uh, social technical computing um we are doing technologically more sophisticated things now than we did before because more technologically sophisticated things are accessible to a much broader population of the country that i think is the way things have changed which is why we are actually now able to do projects like you know hams where you're using driver license testing because even an rto in a rural area right they have access to smartphones right and uh, you know they are interested to see whether driver license testing can be streamlined uh, so i think that um, the high tide has lifted the technology everywhere i think that's one way in which things have changed i mean another one um, where we are now using peer to peer connectivity uh, this project called blendnet where we are actually helping people share media uh, and other bulky resources better and even that actually you know the reason why we are doing this because you know smartphone the desire to view movies entertainment it's very widespread throughout the country right so that's actually another example of projects and even just this morning i was actually looking at a piece of news where they were talking about this company respirer living sciences we are having a collaboration with them to measure air pollution and they want to monitor pollution and democratization right i mean this is now such an important problem and but if you look at what is needed to do that right we have to solve really hard technical problems like you know how do you make sure that the sensors that are sensing these are reliable if there's a way uh, in which the sensors are calibrated if there is erroneous how do you recalibrate them but I mean, these are hardcore technology problems that i think are important to solve a societal problem like air pollution so another way i think things have changed is that maybe perhaps previously all over societal scale uh, problems were sort of low tech that's no longer true um that doesn't mean actually that uh, the tech works as it is right you know we we still work on projects like karya where we are trying to do data collection and crowdsourcing for low resource indian languages um, and that requires actually us to build user interfaces that work with simulated and illiterate users um uh, you know make sure that we are actually able to cater to the multilingual population in the country and so on right so the, the user centered design and the need to design to people on the other side of the digital divide is still important right but you know at the same time the tech tidal wave has also lifted things up so i think that's sort of the dynamic here i think right and there's a bit of a conundrum here right because uh at one point of time uh, it was assumed that technology itself is going to help people's lives become better and so on and we've obviously seen technology permeate to levels within society that it's never permeated before now this brings about questions of digital inclusion and fairness and uh, equitable access to information and to the benefits of technology so a couple of questions here how do we actually ensure things like digital inclusion and fairness 
and given very specific unprecedented situations like the one that we find ourselves now in in the midst of a pandemic how does this actually impact people or impact society at large i think in spite of uh, the fact that d- digital technology has permeated right uh, it is very clear that technology is still very non inclusive right that is also i think uh, true at the same time and so there is no silver bullet i think to the question that you are asking i think it's extremely important for us to think about as scientists and technologists think about underserved populations underserved communities and see whether the technologies that we build you know are inclusive whether they are useful you know i i give an example of you know what manohar swaminathan is doing with his work on accessibility where he has done quite a bit of study in um, schools for visually impaired children thinking about even the curriculum that they have uh, you know in stem and computing computational thinking i think for this population and seeing whether the tools that we have and even the curriculum uh, that we have and the technologies that we have uh, are they actually reaching this uh, demographic and the answer is no and then quite a bit of work needs to be done in order to make sure that uh, you know people with vision impairment uh, children with vision impairment um, are getting educated in digital technologies um, and uh, the technology is inclusive and there's a huge gap there so his work is particularly inspiring uh, in that sense and you know i think problems like awareness and literacy they are very hard problems to solve you know you can make a smartphone cheaper you can actually make uh, you know 4g and 5g maybe more available but you know things like literacy cognition understanding of actually what's going on those take many many generations to resolve so i think one has to think about people's context you know people's preparedness when thinking about uh, inclusion Great. So I'm going to be cognizant of the your time. I know you got a bunch of meetings every day all the time. So before we sign off are there any final thoughts? Yeah. So I would say that I think the the pandemic in in some way has really accelerated digital transformation, right? But at the same time, the pandemic has also exacerbated the gap between the rich and the poor. I think that has also happened. Uh so I would say that um I think this is a very interesting time as you know scientists and technologists on the one hand actually science is is an important hope for us to get out of the pandemic you know be it vaccines you know be it um uh, digital technology to help us communicate and collaborate even you know when uh, we are at our homes uh, technology is such an important thing to do and in order to actually serve you know the large number of people we have to build technology at scale I think that's such an important thing at the same time i think you know the the virus doesn't discriminate between you know rich or poor uh, it doesn't discriminate based on race or gender and so if we have to actually get out of the pandemic you know we have to actually make sure that the solutions you know be it vaccines they reach everyone if anything the pandemic has taught us that you know unless we serve everyone problems like the pandemic and same thing with climate change right those are not going to be solved those are universal problems and that by definition they are inclusive right so i think my closing comment would be for technologists to think about technologies in such a way technology in such a way that it brings people together um you know have empathy for people you know in every shape size and form and make sure that what we build it serves the whole of the world yeah okay Um, Shriram, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. 
yeah thank you Sridhar I wish the listeners health and happiness the rest of the year as well thank you